welcome to another episode of Political Roots. I'm your host, Michael Star Hopkins. And in today's episode, we've got a special guest with us. We've got Jonathan Metzl. He's an acclaimed psych, uh, physician and sociologist who speaks, teaches, and writes on a range of topics, including mental illness and gun violence, race, and whiteness in America. And he's got a new book out. Jonathan, tell us about your book. So my new book is called What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. Um, I've been working on gun issues for about 15 years uh, when, when I lived in Michigan and now that I'm down here at, at Vanderbilt in Tennessee. Um, and, and really, the book tells the story of a really racially charged mass shooting that happened here in 2018, the Nashville Waffle House mass shooting, um, in which a naked white man with an AR-15 walked into a Waffle House uh, at about 2.30 in the morning uh, and shot uh, eight young adults of color, killed four and, and badly injured four others and traumatized our, our entire community. And And really, I tell the story of how was it that a naked white man ended up in South Nashville at, in the middle of the night with an AR-15? And what larger parable does that tell us in a way that, you know, the, the, his naked white body really becomes a, a metaphor for me of a, a lot of bigger issues about race and guns in America? Yeah. You know, when you travel outside of America, it's interesting. The gun culture here doesn't translate anywhere else. Um, and it's become a religion unto itself. Uh, where did that really come from? Well, there's, I talk, I tell that history partially in the book. Mm-hmm. Certainly I know that we've got a history of, of guns and gun ownership um, dating back to before the founding of the country. Um, believe it or not, that history is also tied into the history of race in our country. And so, mm-hmm. for example, um, who could carry a gun in pre-colonial America? Well, you had to be a free white person for the most part. Uh, and people carried guns to suppress rebellions from, quote unquote, um, Indians or Negroes. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, who who got to carry a gun was a very racially coded issue. Um, but it's interesting. What, what I find in the book is that the current debates about guns, about Second Amendment and public health and all that, that wasn't really part of our history for, for a super long time because everybody kind of figured a second amendment that was for militias that was for armies and it wasn't until really the 1980s is is really when all this stuff about every person and their sister and their cousin and their grandmother got to carry a gun mm-hmm. and that's really where the debates that we have now about open carry and um, constitutional carry, which is not in the constitution <laughs> and all these factors um, really play out. And so what we're seeing now is kind of the new generation of, of the gun debate in America. So what we're seeing now, as I talk about in the book, is really a current phenomenon. And, and as I show, for some people, that's freedom and liberty. And for people like me, it means that people like the mass shooter I talk about in the book um, can carry guns without anybody doing anything about it. Yeah, it's interesting you point to that. When I was a kid, uh, I lived in Georgia for a period of time. Uh, and I remember we would play with cap guns. And my mom found a cap gun that I had been playing with and was like, you can't play with that. You can never play with that. And I didn't understand it because my friends who were white would run around with cap guns. And it wasn't until my grandfather pulled me aside one day. And it was like, they can't tell whether it's real or not. And you don't get the benefit of the doubt that your friends are going to get. Um, and I think it's so interesting to see how 
the racial lines are blurred. You know, you look at that case out of Minnesota where you had an individual who was in his car rightfully possessing a gun, uh, informed police that he had a gun when he got pulled over, and then police still shot him. Like, how, how do the racial dynamics play in gun ownership in this country? Like, what did you find? Well, there's a story that we all know, and particularly if you're Black in America that you know, which is linked to what you just said, which is... I talk about the politics of open carry, and I just show, for example, in the book, the exact same Walmart where a white um, patriot gun owner walks in and everybody's like, you know, where, where can I find the, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, they're seen as a protector. Mm-hmm. Um, the same Walmart, a black legal gun owner walks in and they are tackled or shot. And so there is a racial coding about what it means to carry a gun, which is not... If you think about like what the Black Panthers were arguing in the 50s and 60s, they were like, a gun is the great equalizer, but that's not true, really. You know, a gun, a gun is the great signifier, um, but it signifies a lot of deeper, uh, deeper issues. And so that the story we know is the story of the black gun owner who's a threat to white America. That was the story of my last book and my book before that, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, uh, but but this is a different story. This is a story of the threat of the white gun owner. That's the story I'm telling in this book. What's the story we tell around a white gun owner? Um, because um, in, in this in this instance, um, the guy Travis Ranking, who was the mass shooter, uh, he was coming from a conservative part of Illinois. He came from a gun owning family, a gun owning community, but. This guy was stopped by the cops four or five times. I talk about the police reports. He went to D.C. and he tried to jump the wall at at the White House and he had an FBI report. And every time this guy was given his gun guns back and he was also incredibly psychotic, incredibly dangerous. But people didn't see him as the kind of threat, the kind of person who would be disarmed. And so the story I tell in this book is a, a flip of Michael of the story you just told, which is what's the threat of the white gun owner, and in this case, the white gun owner who kills people of color. And so, in a way, to me, that's why this story was so important. Is that it's an inversion of the racial trope that we hear so much, and it turns out, at, if, you know, no surprise given my work, mm-hmm. that that the whiteness is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I mean. When we saw the rise of the Black Panthers and African-Americans um, starting to use that Second Amendment right, there was a pushback um, and there was this threat of blackness and gun ownership. Now, as we kind of see Trumpism and the January 6th rise, you're seeing African-Americans once again. You know, I have friends that weren't gun owners before that are talking about becoming gun owners because yeah. of the politics, because of you know what's going on in our country. It feels like a really dangerous tinderbox time because you're seeing white America retreat into gun ownership. And now you're starting to see the black community, communities of color retreat into gun ownership. What does that spell for our future? Well, you know, from a public health perspective, more guns mean more shootings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean more protection, but it means all the kind of shootings that are the most common shootings. Um, and, and so if you, if you honestly, my book is about race and guns and, mm-hmm. and, and, and I go so deeply into this, into this story. Um, you know, what you're in, on one hand, I can see, you know, white guns have been held up as this sign of privilege. Um, 
uh, for so long, for so long, um, that it's understandable that, um, you know, you know, I can, I can see the allure going back 50 years of guns being the equalizer. But what you see is that guns bring partner shootings. They bring gun suicide, accidental shootings, all these other factors. And so in a way you're kind of, you're inviting the devil into your home in a, in a certain kind of way. And so it's a, it's a mixed bag, but ultimately what I argue is, um, a democracy where everybody's armed and they're not solving their problems by any means other than pulling out guns or shooting people is not really a democracy as the framers of the constitution would think about it. So I'd rather, I'd rather take seriously the question of kind of what guns mean, uh, in, in, in a, in a kind of societal way than I would to say everybody should just rush out and get a gun. Yeah, what do you think it is about right now? I mean, I live in DC and we're seeing a really big uptick in crime and you can feel it. It's palpable. Um, you're seeing across cities across the country. You're feeling the same thing. Do you, one of the things you've talked about is public health mentality of gun ownership is this a social issue? Is this a mental health issue? What is it about crime in the cities right now that we're seeing this perpetuation? Well, I talk a lot about Chicago in the book. Mm-hmm. And so part of the story I tell is that, um, I mean, certainly there is a lot of crime and there are a lot of narratives around that. And I think everybody's seeing a little piece of it for people I interview on the right. It's about, you know, woke prosecutors and lenient mm-hmm. Um uh, you know, and let me say I was a public defender in Manhattan. Like, yeah, I am not the super right. Wing. No, I know. But, but I, on the same side of that, I will say you can feel the difference. Like, it, it yeah. feels very much like the '90s in DC. Right. The the issue is, and I was just in DC, and I felt it too. And I think it's true in a lot of places. But the, I guess you know what I argue in the book is that the issue, in part, is that blue cities, in particular, and multiracial cities. Mm-hmm are in part being set up to fail right now. In other words, if, if they're like incredibly lawless, that helps people like Trump who just said, I'm going to come in and put federal, you know, people taken over or yeah. uh, he's saying that he's going to have armed red state militias coming to New York to uh, arrest people. And so what I call this is a war of Southern aggression in the book. And, and what I argue is that I mean certainly I think blue state blue cities and diverse cities and cities in general need to do more about crime prevention. I think I, I think that's true. Um, but I would also say that like I look at Chicago for example and I ask like why is there so much gun crime in Chicago? And it's not just because of you know unruly, uncontrollable masses, which is what you'd think if you saw, watched you know right wing media. Yeah, it's also that in Chicago you can drive 15 minutes to Indiana and load up your minivan with as many guns as you want, or you can drive to Wisconsin and there's a store in green Bay where 60% of the illegal guns go through this one area and then are used in crimes across the country. So, and then Chicago also has had its, its gun laws weakened by rural conservative legislators, the same way it has in Kansas city, for example. Um, and, And so in a way, we, we've kind of hamstrung the ability of cities to to make to make them safe, and then people point and say, "Look, these people can't govern themselves, and I need to take over." And so, in a way, it's it's kind of a, I mean, it's a real thing, and it's a real thing for people who live there. And and I wish we would do more, but I would also say, I mean, let's let's look at Kansas City as one example. Kansas City, where the parade shooting was last week, um, has the city, the mayor of Kansas City, for 
months and months has been saying, let me create some policies to reduce gun crime, but they're not able to do so because rural legislators passed a law in the state, basically, that said that um, cities can't pass gun laws. It's literally illegal and unconstitutional. So we've hamstrung the ability of diverse cities to set their own safety policies. And then they're held up as saying like, look, it's just like Black Lives Matter. Everybody's looting. Everybody's shooting. So in a way, um, you know, I, I want the problem to be solved for everybody. But I would also say that there are a lot of headwinds right now to actually addressing it. Yeah, I mean, there's, it also feels like there's this worshiping of guns in our culture. And so the fact that you can walk into a Walmart in almost any suburban place in this country and buy a coffee machine and a pump action shotgun seems ludicrous to me. Um, and that's the norm. I mean, yeah. you can literally buy a box of Cheerios and a shotgun um, in most Walmarts in this country. Then people yeah. wonder where crime's coming from. Yeah, no, I mean, again, we, we I mean, I mean, I, I'll just admit it. My side has lost, <laughs> you know, I, that's part of what I argue. And that's why I've been getting a lot of pushback on the book. Cause I say like, look, man, what we're doing politically is not working. I got cut off on morning Joe when I was trying to make this argument because mm-hmm. people don't want to hear it. Everybody says, Oh, we 90% of people support background checks. And I'm like, yeah, but we're losing because you can go anywhere and buy a gun and carry a gun. And until we can address that in a meaningful way, what that means, you know, we really have to be honest with ourselves. And so I just think there's a reckoning that's going to happen. I mean, I think it's just to be clear, very, very important who we elect in 24, because that's going to really impact how we address this issue. Um, and I'm somebody, you know, I come from a, I come from Missouri. It's not like guns are super foreign to me. I live in Tennessee, uh, but, but, um, but I think, you know, we, we, we've just, we've lost this issue because there are so many unregulated, untraceable, unpermitted guns and people walking around. And so it, it just, we're one small step from anarchy is kind of how it feels. And, and I feel like depending on who we elect, either that's going to get better or that's going to get worse. So it feels like, honestly, either way, it's going to be pretty bad because as a Democrat, let me say, if Trump's elected, I, I want some guns because I don't know what's going to go on. Like it's a fear thing at this point. And I think it's true for Republicans. If Joe Biden's elected, they're afraid that we're going to take away their guns. Like in my ideal society, we'd live in a world with no guns unless you wanted to hunt. But like, that's not the world we live in. And I feel like we've gotten to a place where even Democrats have said, all right, fuck it. If you guys are going to have guns, then we have to have them too, because we can't be the only ones who don't have them. And then there's this small slice of like super liberals who just are yeah. activists. And are like, you know, I just, I had a piece in time magazine last week where I argued that that, that is not the democracy our framers imagined where we can't come together to solve uh, differences peacefully. Um, and, and so um, I, I think that, um, uh, um, you know, I, I think that that's kind of where we're at. It's, mm-hmm. it's a bad thing, but we need a new strategy to push back on it. What was it about Sandy Hook that didn't change things? I mean, we saw a group of kids massacred, and not for nothing, a group of white, upper-middle-class kids massacred. Um, we cried about it for a couple days, and then we moved on. And it, it felt like in that moment, if we didn't do something in that moment, if we, yeah, if white kids' blood 
wasn't enough to bring the nation up than whatever would be. Well, I just think we misunderstood how power works. That's what I show in, in the book, really, you know, because, um, again, it's, it's a very clear example of the need for gun reform and the fact that we didn't pass it then or in these other just clearly egregious examples, um, I think shows a misperception of how power works. That's kind of what I argue that our side is arguing for. We're making a moral argument and a medical argument. People will come to their senses, common sense, all that kind of stuff. Um, um, and, uh, and, um, and so I think that's part of the issue. Um, but I would also say um, the other side didn't do marches. They didn't try to moralize people. They just took over judges. So yeah. they controlled the Supreme Court. So we are, you know, what I show in the book is if you don't have judges, you don't have very much. And it's not like people are going to structurally, it's not like they're bad people. They're not going to come to their senses. Yeah, I had Ellie Massal on uh, a couple episodes ago. And one of the things that we really harped on were the courts. Democrats keep making emotional arguments. We keep trying to appeal to people's reason and their you know, good nature. And Republicans are very uh, regimented in the fact that this is lobbying. This is the courts. This is judicial. And they go step yeah. by step and implement change, you know, whether it's gun uh, reform, whether it's uh, abortion, anti-abortion legislation. I mean, they really... It almost in some ways reminds me of uh, the Chinese strategy of like the hundred year strategy. We're yeah, no, they're playing years. the long game. Yeah, yeah. And they're focused on, you know, 50 year change. Um, 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 and so, you know, I think that's the issue is they're playing the long game. And, you know, w- what I show is what we did, it's, it's it, not to critique anybody, but we, we, we protested after shootings and we rallied and we, Assume people would come to their senses, but we weren't playing the long game and it's costing us now. What role do you think Democrats moving forward? Like what, how do Democrats frame this in a way that doesn't make this a losing issue? I mean, every time Democrats touch guns, it is, excuse the pun, a death knell. Well, what I argue in the book is that we need a, we need a strategy that involves judges <laughs> that with the reason we lose isn't because of popular opinion. It's because our strategy doesn't involve putting judges in place. And so that's a long project. I know people like David Hogg and other people are starting from the ground up with grassroots movements. And I think that's what needs to happen. We, if we don't control the judiciary, if we don't have more voices on the Supreme court, it, it's just going to, I mean, the Supreme court is undoing all of gun control right now. I have suggested something that I think is super controversial and it would make a lot of people uncomfortable and upset. I think we should start showing the crime scene videos or the photos, the the morgue photos, the effects of what happens with these, these high powered, high velocity weapons. Cause it's not until you really understand it. It's, it's, it's Emmett Till. You don't um, really understand the effects until you see it. But the thing is, I, I, I agree with you in terms of, I mean, I hope people read my book because I have a very, very, very second by second depiction of a mass shooting. Absolutely. If people want to know what it's like to be in a room in a mass shooting, this is, I, I break it down by the second, but I would also say that it's the same thing that it's, it's not like any more graphic details are going to change anybody's mind. I mean, certainly it, it might be mobilizing in some other ways. Um, but again, because we don't control judges, um, it's not like the power structures that are in place are going to be changed. 
really by popular opinion at all. And so we need a more linear, a kind of a, a more horizontal structure where we're not just trying to get policies, but we're actually gearing toward putting judges in place. And and I think until the gun reform movement really has that the way like the Federalist Society does, that just showing pictures is not going to is not going to make a difference. So as much as I hate to say that. Yeah, no, no, no. I think you're 100% right. So Republicans have really been have been really good at funding a lot of these uh, nonprofit and judicial activism groups. Do you think uh, more Democrats funding groups like uh, March for Lives and David Hogg's organization, things like that? Um, well, the reason I think David's group is, is important is because they're not just looking at gun policy. Mm-hmm. They're actually looking at running people for election boards and secretary of state and comptroller and school board. And it's not just all linked to guns, right? So I just think what they realized, which is what the right realized a long time ago, is that it's got to be part of this larger package. If people are just voting based on gun policy, they're not going to vote the way you want them to. Is it a lost argument at this point in terms of we're never I'm hard pressed to believe we're going to get back to a point where we have an assault rifle ban. We have, you know, the legislation we had 30 years ago. Um, my, I think the argument needs to be more technology based, you know, the fingerprint scanners on guns, things that make guns more secure and more traceable. Uh, because my big fear is now with 3d printing that the untraceable, the ghost guns is really the, the threat. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to get back to where we are because even with legal guns, quote unquote, we've got 500, we've got more than almost two guns per people person in the country right now. And so really, I think we need to be thinking, what can we do with so many guns around? Um, and as you say, ghost guns is also a huge problem. Um, it ties back to what you were saying before. I think we need, I do think we need crime reform, honestly, because I think guns are so tied to this and what that looks like. I would personally rather have that come from my side than the other side. Yeah, um, because it, but it's going to come from the other side if we don't get get get, a, get a, a bit more active about it. But that being said, again, like the mayor of Kansas City is a perfect example. I talk about in my book somebody who really wanted there to be crime reform, but was not allowed to do so because the um, you know, whoops, your mic went out. There you go. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I I talk about um the mayor of Kansas City who was urging for gun safety reform and crime reform. But he wasn't allowed to do so because the, it was very useful for Republicans to have black people killing each other in cities. And so in a way, I just I think we need to reboot the crime narrative as much as liberals don't want to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it feels like we're getting ready to go through another cycle, um, much like we did in the 80s and 90s, where Democrats were defensive on crime. And so their reaction was to overreact and put forth harsh legislation that ended up perpetuating this cycle all over again. I mean, you yeah, see DC was the city council of DC is recalling one of the city council members because of his support of crime legislation. And you're seeing, you know, these sort of initiatives start to pop up all over, which is what like, they're recalling him because he's, because he's too soft on crime or hard on crime, too soft on crime. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we'll see that in other cities also. So again, I'd rather our side frame this story than the other side. Um, but, but it's an invert, you know, in the nineties, uh, uh, in the nineties, um, it was Democrats who were pushing, for example, the crime bill. And what I learned in the, about the crime bill, which is pretty interesting is that, um, 
black Americans were more likely than white Americans to, um, to support it because they supported the assault weapons ban that was part of it and things like that. So there really has been a total inversion about this. And it's interesting to see, but I agree with you. I think things are going to change. Yeah. And I think Democrats also have to be careful in their understanding, or at least their thinking of how to talk about crime. The African-American community is very conservative when it comes to crime because we're the ones experiencing it a lot of times. And so we are a lot more conservative and a lot more uh, supportive of some of the crime legislation that would surprise a lot of liberals. Yeah. You know, I think that's right. So anyway, so we'll see what happens. I mean, black Americans are not the fastest growing group of gun owners. So as you say, you know, things are changing, but I don't know. It's just, I'd rather go to a parade and not worry about if I'm going to get shot or not, honestly. Yeah. As we head into the 2024 election to wrap this up, what would be your message to Democrats about guns to stay away from the conversation and wait to legislate? To- no, no. I think we need to change how we talk about it. So when this posts, um, if it goes on social media, mm-hmm. I'll also post a piece I did for Huffington Post last week Perfect. that talks about five, five ways I think Democrats can reboot this conversation that actually are going to be um, a bit more useful than arguing for background checks and red flag laws, which is what we're doing now. So I've actually been thinking about this in a quite a point by point way. And and yeah. I talk about one of the things is crafting our own narrative about crime rather than just reacting to it and being more entrepreneurial about public safety, um, thinking about ways that mandates did not work during the pandemic and really re-articulating that. Um, and so that, that to me, that to me is kind of where it's at is re-articulating this story. And again, as you say, also playing the long game. Last question. What does the country look like if Democrats don't win in terms of guns? Well, we have three NRA judges from Trump and they overturned um, the entire pretty much gun control movement, to be honest. Um, if we had more more of the judiciary, um, you know, what I argue is guns aren't just health problems, they're democracy problems. And, and so guns would be used to enforce an agenda that I don't think, I think people, I think people would be truly sorry. They didn't rally for the Democrats, people who care about this issue right now, because anybody who's saying Democrats and Republicans are the same about this, um, um, you know, tell me what gun laws look like. If you don't have three NRA judges from Trump who did the Bruin case in 2022, who overturned a hundred year old gun law in New York, um, and, and and that's just the beginning. And so I think the implications are really significant. Um, how we get there between now and November, I'm not quite sure, but I sure hope we do. Jonathan Metzl, author of What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. Thank you so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Absolutely. that's a wrap on another episode of political roots i want to thank our guest jonathan metzel for joining us make sure you go out and grab his new book what we've become living and dying in a country of arms as always thank you so much for listening and until next time i'm michael star hopkins this is political roots take care